Welcome to the Choosing Hope podcast. My name is Munira Pramji and I am so glad you're here. This is the podcast where you will meet some extraordinary people who have faced adversity and have overcome it. And they're here to tell you how they did this and what they've learned. We will explore themes like hope, community, and self-care. Topics that I cover in my book, Choosing Hope, One Woman, Three Cancers. If you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hello, please connect with me through Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. I am so incredibly delighted to introduce you to the guest for today's episode. Her name is Katherine Jensen. She has a master's in public health from the University of Washington. She spent over a decade in public health, managing violence prevention and teen health programs. And over time, she shifted her career to become a licensed professional counselor and founded Energy Counseling. She now integrates the tenets of public health and principles of psychotherapy in her work as a therapist, an author, and a teacher. Through her private practice, Catherine supports her clients with the process of healing from the inside out and helping them live their lives as their most conscious self. Catherine is also a writer and published her first book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness. And we will be talking a lot about this book today. Um, welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you so very much for having me. Thank I got you. to tell you, I have been so looking forward to this uh, interview. Mm -hmm. We had a pre-meeting a few weeks ago, as you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we spoke about so many topics and we could have continued that conversation, I think, for another hour. Yeah. And I have just been so excited to um, have you come in today and mm -hmm. share your wisdom um, to articulate the things that you do in only the way that you can. Mm. And uh, for my listeners to get a sense of who you are. And I, mm. I literally can't wait to dive into today's conversation. Oh, I'm so excited too, I know. And I've loved our connection and so appreciate the time that we had before so we could really come to this um, as we are feeling today for, for this time and for your listeners. So, yes. Amazing. So let's dive in right into the book. And I'm warning you right now that I have tons of questions for you today. <laughs> so I don't know where we're going or, or mm. how we get to where we get to, but the universe is, is watching over us and will take us to where we need to be. Yes. So you organized um, your book, your incredible book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness. You organized this book based on your own healing journey. And I wondered if you would feel comfortable sharing with the listeners what your life looked like uh, when you were 16. And uh, suffice to say, you were certainly not living your most conscious self at that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was living in the brokenness that had kind of emerged uh, from a few years before that, the divorce of my parents, really to my surprise, and the way it was handled, um, uh, and love my father, and we did the work around healing this, uh, but pretty traumatically uh, delivered as a message uh, from him, I'm leaving the family, 
not just not just mom. And so that kid didn't uh, know what was to be, but what happened inside was really taking that personally. I wasn't uh, good enough to keep my father in our house, my sister and I, the remaining kids in the household. So it really fractured that sense of worth and um, deep shame um, happened. Of course, all of this I didn't understand in the moment, but over a couple of years, it just began to erupt. And so at 16, I actually attempted suicide. It was a very dark time. Thank God, uh, I my mom at the, that time in life uh, kind of knew to get all of the dangerous drugs out of the house. And so I literally just put a lot of antibiotics in my system. And I always joke that that's why I don't get sick that often is because I had this huge dose. So she knew that um, I was in harm's way and did what she could to prevent uh, that attempt. But I had a kind of moment with the universe, with God in the hospital room. And it's kind of like, if I can't get this right in a, in a way I would have thought about it at 16, then I've got to do something different. And I quit high school and I left for San Francisco from Roseburg, Oregon. And that was really the beginning of healing from the inside out. That is the life at 58. Um, I'm just so glad and grateful and kind of still astonished that um, has manifested. Mm. Mm-hmm. And during those really dark times, you also had to change your relationship with food and with your body. I mean, there was so much going on with you. Yes. Well, the form it took having had an eating disorder prior to kind of that trauma that it had was just percolating flipped to food addiction. So I was at 200 pounds, which with my frame is obese and, um, So, yeah, I had kind of literally become unrecognizable to myself, to my peers, um, and again, such a deep shame. So uh, part of healing for me was really um, not produce or um, uh, uh, perpetrating violence onto my body in the form of uh, food addiction. So, yeah. And I put those kinds of things in the book because, um, you know, there are a lot of kinds of addiction. And there's a lot of um, disassociation, I would say, from the body. Mm-hmm. And I really had to heal with my body. My body talks to me every day and we have conversations every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting a COVID vaccination on Sunday morning and I'm talking to my body about what I'm going to, what it's going to be going through because this is what we need to do. Um, but that relationship with my body did not exist before. And so one cherishing the body um, is one of the aspects of wakefulness in the book that I felt critical um, to put in, at least for some of us. Mm -hmm. So you had this uh, wake up call and uh, you had to really um, go through the process of healing from the inside out. And I love how you share these powerful nuggets of life wisdom in your book. Um, And speaking of your book, I love this book. And for anybody who's looking for a book to read right now, this is my new current favorite book, River to Ocean. Ocean. Pick up a copy. It's not the kind of book that you can read from beginning to end. This is a book, I mean, I've had it for two weeks and I'm a really fast reader. And I haven't read all of the book because you can only take it in small doses, Mm -hmm. chock full of information. And each time I pick it up, I find that I learn a new Mm -hmm. aspect. So Mm -hmm. the book, River to Ocean, 
uh, is a book about how we're put onto this planet to live actively, to be fully engaged and to be deeply committed to all aspects of ourselves. And the book truly invites the reader to move into our inner being to find personal value in our life. How did you decide to call the book uh, River to Ocean? Well, uh, the book kind of came to me because I had never just like, I didn't expect to have a second career and have a, get a second master's and become a therapist. It just really was a calling. The book became clear. I, I can look back now. It's about 10 years when it started. Um, there was a gentleman that was on the Oprah show at the time, actually, and he, I have six children and um, he, he was, he knew he was going to die. So he produced this video because he had so much he wanted to share. It really brings tears actually to my heart to think about this for him. And he didn't have a long time. And something about that and something about I can't be my kid's therapist and something about all the teachers that have helped me and therapists and the, the walk. And then what I'm bringing to in terms of to my practice for my clients, all of that felt like there's a book and it's called River to Ocean. I believe we are all part of some larger whole. However, we define that but we are also all our own individual river getting there. And it just, for me, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So we have a big ocean that I visit often and we have rivers. And so it just felt like, and I'm, I just love metaphor. So it felt like a way to connect with ideas. These Lots of the ideas I present are not new under the sun, but they're the way I would describe them. And so I wanted something that would resonate with uh, as many people as possible. And this book, actually, part of it is uh, hearkening back to public health because not everybody can afford a therapist. Not everybody feels comfortable going to a therapist. So beyond my children, I felt like this is a way somebody can have something, a, a guidebook on all the different parts and hardships of life on life's terms that could help them navigate that life if I never even meet them. And so there, there was that piece in there too. But I kind of just said yes to it. It kind of told me it was going to write. <laughs> so I surrendered. And then I did get a professional editor who that was a whole nother level of writing. Uh, so that was very helpful. But even how it unfolded really was my own journey. I had to heal from the inside out. I, I tried changing my life on the outside, but then I never was okay on the inside. And so once I reversed that, then my outer world manifested um, very differently in terms of conscious living and loving once the inner world kind of uh, focus was there. Mm -hmm. Well, the book uh, deeply, deeply resonated for me, deeply. Mm, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I love this concept that you talk about because you've organized the book based on starting with the inner world and then the outer world. And I, I wonder if you could please define inner world and outer world, just so that we have a, a shared mm -hmm. understanding. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, it's it's kind of literal, I guess, in a way, because I'll just quickly, if, if it's all right. So the first aspect is, aspect is befriending you. This idea that it is not narcissism to have a loving relationship to ourselves. And within that, of course, you may know there's, there's a piece on intrinsic worth. There's a piece on working with the ego. There's a, there's a piece on self-love. Um, so there's that as a foundation. That's the headwater to me of, of the river is our relationship to self because all of our life is sourced 
by that we um the quality of that the the amount of love is the love that we have to offer the world our generosity towards self is then an an outer peace so anyway there's that aspect and then right away it's about freedom from the mind because our mind is so powerful and so much mental uh illness and mental health is really comes down to um, our thinking and our thoughts and our believing those thoughts and projections. Um, and, and so if someone has not worked with the mind, it's going to be very hard not to be anxious. It's going to be really hard not to be depressed if I believe a depressing thought. So I'm a meditator, but I also practice kind of ideas of challenging the mind. So I needed to put that in there. Mindfulness is its own chapter, really knowing how to live in the moment. We tend to live in the past or so often a lot of us in the future. So really putting attention on what that looks like, not just for a minute, but actually, but that being an ongoing state. And then I finished with the body because again, that's kind of an inner world. That's the sense of self. Um, and I threw in embracing death and dying. That felt like a part of what one contends with. Um, if we do, we live a different life. If we really face um, within ourselves our mortality mm-hmm. um, and our fears about that, uh, it changes our life right now and does not tempt fate in my in my thinking. So mm-hmm. then the outer world was nature because I believe our relationship to nature is actually critically important. Um, and we've lost that in our species. Uh, so that felt important. And then relationship to other conscious relationship, finding our way in the world, and especially these days in a troubled world. And then my final one was just uh, developing your own spiritual path. So many of my clients, maybe your listeners, they don't go, you know, they might be connected to a religion or partially so, but many are not. And so they, I just wanted to give some ideas about how to kind of find your own um, spiritual path. So... I love it. Thank you for walking mm. through the, the, the nine um, aspects. I have to tell you, when I first picked up your book, <laughs> I did what I normally do, which is I skim through and I start from the middle. And then oh, I realized yeah. very quickly that it wasn't working very well, that I needed mm. to start from the inner aspects yes. in order to yeah. get to the, it just yeah. made a lot more sense. So I, I commend you. Um, Thank you. You did it. Uh, but, but I'm curious now, when you talk about the nine aspects of wakefulness, how did you determine that there were going to be nine? Like when you started the book, did you say, I'm going to write about nine aspects of wakefulness or maybe there were seven and then they grew into nine or um they, yeah they kind of they kind of did and some of my readers actually um because the relationship to self befriending you and conscious relationship those are meaty chapters yes, um, aspects and so uh a couple of my readers more than more than a couple said this is kind of two books but you see Manira, i had not intended to write a book in my life it was a lot it really was a labor of love. And I felt like I'm putting everything in the kitchen sink in there. And so it is a lot to read. And I, and I didn't want to repeat myself either because I don't care for self-help books and, 
and personal work where it's repetitive. And so I, it's dense and, um, and I just kind of gave it my all. So um, I, I think it, um, it unfolded into nine. I, I think it always was eight. And then my final kind of, it's not an aspect, but there were still some things because it took, took a long time to write this book. I call it a backpack full of ideas. They're yes, just like, oh, know. I better put that piece in there. Oh, I better put that piece in there. You know, I work, I don't know, an example of that is proximity of love. It's just a little phrase I came up with because in to be our most conscious selves, we need to find a proximity of love. So how close can I be to you? And I am still my most conscious self. And that might be how, how much time we spend together. Um, that might be even physical distance. Like some people can be really loving with their family of origin, but not as a neighbor, you know, they need to be a couple hundred miles away. So, and then it's like, well, I don't know what aspect that falls under. So I'm just going to throw it in the backpack of ideas. <laughs> I know this, the backpack of ideas is kind yeah. of almost like the, the miscellaneous section. I know, know. exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I got to tell you this book, I, I love this book. And mm. what I loved about it is that each aspect that you talked about, and you're right, the first two are incredibly robust and incredibly meaty. Each one is an invitation to literally visit a different spot along the river, you know. And then the other thing I love is how you end each uh, aspect with uh, with something I think you call uh, stories from the field and practice yeah. exercises. And yes. to me, it was like the the aspect was the awareness piece, and then the. Um, yeah practice exercises and the stories from the field was really taking it from awareness to integration. Was that your intent? That was absolutely my intent. And, and because now we know when I even uh, began this career almost 20 years ago, they didn't have the neural research that we have now. We didn't understand that we could really build a new brain. And so if we only have awareness, which is lovely because to be unaware is awful, <laughs> but awareness is not the finish line. It is not the finish line for most things. In fact, for some things, it can be more painful. If I speak to somebody about worth, I give them this idea, oh, you're probably struggling with feeling unworthy. Okay, now I'm aware of that. But if I don't know what to do about that, then it, it can feel almost like shameful of like, I should be doing so. This should be different now that I know this. Information does not create neural change necessarily. So integration was so important to me. And I tried to do a different kinds. Like I know for one thing, I threw in a song. Sometimes it's writing to your inner child. Sometimes it's going out to a different neighborhood and, and, and facing diversity and your uncomfortableness around that. Um, I just tried to put practice, practice, then we embody wakefulness, I guess I would say. So rather than we understand wakefulness, it is about embodiment. And then I did feel like the stories from the field were the cherry on top that, you know, once in a while, and for some people that's, that it makes the difference to know that somebody is walking this walk. It's not just good ideas of practice and great ideas of content. Um, and so I'm some of the stories, but not a lot. A few of my children are. Um, my clients, with their permission, of course, um, really were willing to say, let's make this real. Let's take somebody with, in the one case, uh, bipolar disorder, where I have path versus pathology, be, you know, because this gentleman defined himself as 
I am my bipolar versus mm. this is a process of moving through it. And so not everybody has bipolar, of course, but wow, for him to be able to be vulnerable and have a place to tell his story about how to be wakeful and heal through um, that journey. So yeah, that's the inspiration part, aspiration, inspiration, but integration, you've really nailed it. That was my intention for sure. Mm. Yeah, well, you've succeeded in that. Um, You've talked quite a bit about intrinsic worth and that was my favorite uh, one Mm. chapter to read. Um, Can you speak about the concept of intrinsic worth and how one cultivates it? Well, it's so funny. I I do this test, and if you've read this part, you may remember in the book when I am working with parents and uh, not with their children and and doing family therapy, but I know someone is a parent. Um, I do this little test. like, uh, So what I mean by intrinsic worth is you are innately good enough like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel that way. I, I've always struggled with self-esteem. I say, so tell me about this child. Tell me about how you know, you just know in your being, they are innately good enough. They don't have to kick a soccer ball perfectly well. They don't have to be good at music. They may be super bright. They may struggle educationally, but they are innately good enough. And then knowing feeling. It's like, so that's what we, that's what we're confused about. See, we were born with it and you can't actually change it. I frame it as we, something happened along the way. For me, I know it was at 14 years old where I, the fracture to my sense of worth. So many people don't know where they lost that sense of I'm enough other than living in Western culture, which kind of has a sense of proving one's sense, oneself mm-hmm. and kind of mm-hmm. conditional worth. And so you know, a lot of, most people do not come into my clinical practice saying as a counseling goal, I want to work on my worth. But when we unpack all the things, we get to the core of what drives, you know, that perfectionism. Oh, it's a compensation around not feeling worthy. What drives that anxiety? Right, you have to be performative, which is usually anxiety producing because just your authentic self is not good enough. But what drives the control? Exactly, exactly. And then I would get those looks, especially early on, of like, okay, now we've identified it. What the heck do I do about that? I can't change what happened to me. And then that's what's so hopeful about neural pathways and neurobiology. And this, but we can change it now. Um, and so that's just such exciting work. So I just feel like again. Uh, though there were many people that helped me along the way, Tara Brock is one person that began to name the thing unworthiness. But early, when I was 16, I was going to therapists and talking about my feelings, but no one was helping me understand what was controlling and driving my deepest pain. So my story that my father left me, it was my fault or I wasn't good enough, right? And then this pain, um, that really food began to be the thing that I would medicate with stuffing that pain down with binge eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a wide net. It's not all things, you know, I can't, I didn't just write a book about intrinsic worth, but um, it's a wide net that it, it is, that it throws in terms of its impact. And I almost wonder what life would be like if we felt we were inherently worthy 
in how we would approach the world as opposed to from a place of anxiety or control or fear. Yes. Um, you know, we, we, we truly could be the best versions of ourselves if we were kind to ourselves and, and honored that inner child, I think. He honored that, yes. And as we were speaking a little bit in our pre-interview, I even going to the point of when I know that I am enough, then I can accept my fallibility. If I accept yes. my fallibility, that means I can own things. And that's a game changer for me in my life. Because when I can see something and own it without shame, but then just face that music, because we are human and we are fallible, then I can evolve then I can do something about it. Then I can make amends to somebody I've injured. Though not my intent, I did hurt you. So I can see that because there is no internal process trying to shut that down, giving me blinders. There's no I don't want to get political right now, but I would say our current political state right now with our current leadership as we do this interview is literally that somebody cannot concede. They cannot because of what that means, because of profound unworthiness that's how big it is you're right what a world we would be what a world we would be wow hmm. love it um i wanted you to share the example that you shared with me a few weeks ago when we first spoke about uh, self-worth and tara brock mm. <laughs> teachers yeah yeah, and then if I can, I'm thinking of another thing just intuitively to share on the worth piece, if that's okay. So, um, you know, when I got to the point of like, okay, I've written this book and I self-publish because in the land of publishing, I didn't know this. Uh, you may know this. You pretty much have to have a following before a publishing company will accept you. Well, I didn't, I mean, I have a small, not small, but I mean, I have a great practice in Portland, Oregon, but I'm not big on social media. Like that's not been my walk. So I was, you know, but then I also, also learned that if I went to a publishing company, they would control the content, they would own it, and no one could own River to Ocean. The universe owns your River to Ocean. So there was just a lot of good things about I was going to self-publish. So I had my editor, and I hired a book marketer, and we were talking about how to kind of launch the book and how to get it out to industry. And and I'm like, well, what stops me from sending this to Oprah? What stops me from sending this to uh, Eckhart Tolle? What stops me from sending this to Tara Brock? Like, first of all, they've helped me. And I want to thank them and say, this is what happened for me. And you were contributed. And it might help them. But you see, if I hadn't known myself as no less than, they would have, I, I couldn't have sent those out. I am no less than. And you are no less than, I am no greater than. And so that is such a leveler of the playing field. And it gives us a bravery and a freedom and an I-thou kind of relationship with everyone, which is so incredible, which, you know, and then I, I went and saw her and uh, to thank her last summer, uh, or excuse me, two summers ago when this was all happening, because it was late in 2019 when I published my book. And when I went up at the line, so I was at her meditation retreat at the Omega Institute and had my book and just wanted to look in her eyes. I, she and I had this moment of gaze and she just embodies everything that her book is about. It was just like, hi, hi, thank you. She's like, thank you. I have it on my desk. 
I've been really helped by this book. Like you are phenomenal. And thank you so much for this incredible endorsement. Um, she really walked the walk. So even in person, but just the, 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 again, the bravery to send this book out to the people that had helped me without a sense that they're better than me. So yeah. I don't know where that would take your listeners. What would they be doing? Who would they sit with and feel equal to? It's a you game know? changer. I'm no less than you and I'm no greater than you. And yeah. uh, what, what courage that could set forth. I, I, I think yeah. it's a game changer. Yeah, exactly. And the little nugget I would share, because this um, one of the readers of my book was one of my children, and she, um, of course, from her parents. Uh, so one story from the field is a gentleman who his father was never around. So he has a classic kind of case of, like me, a very big childhood wound and trauma about why he didn't have worth. But my daughter really struggled um, at 25 with her sense of worth. And she read the book and she said, mom, people aren't going to, some people aren't going to relate to this because I did have parents telling me I was loved. I was enough. They didn't get a divorce. I had two active parents. So you need a story in the book that's about people like me that still struggle with worth and they don't know why. And they had even messages from their childhood, but still I struggled. And so I put her story in because, you know, however we, whether we know why we don't feel worthy or we don't know why we don't feel worthy, you know, yeah, that's. Certainly. Yeah, I'm certainly finding that with a lot of my coaching clients, yeah. um, especially those that are millennials. Yeah. Um, I'm finding that as a group, um, uh, I'm finding a pattern. And the yes. pattern I'm finding is that they feel that they have to constantly prove themselves because they're only as good as their last gig. And right. I, I see it and it's such a, a horrible place to be because we're constantly uh, having to prove and your, your self-worth. And, right. and, and I don't know sometimes how to help them to, to, mm -hmm. say, to say, hey, you are inherently worthy. Well, we, yes, and I would say we have to ultimately, and this is, doesn't have to be clinical work. I certainly put pieces of this in the book, but for some people, it is literally trauma work. We have to go and turn toward, again, in our world work to the part that's confused. But what's phenomenal about this is we could understand my awakened self has always known my worth. Mm -hmm. She's not confused. But a part of me that's young, most of us experience that as a young part, but an injured part, that's the part that's confused. The problem is that part goes online a lot of the time or is online and is reinforced by the culture. So when we can separate the part of me that is confused from the part of me that can know, see, if I didn't know I was worthy as a baby, I wouldn't have cried for food because I wasn't as, as good as the baby next to me. But see, I knew. I knew it's in there. So that's the hardwiring. And then once we have parts, those two parts in us can have a relationship and they can help one another. And that's really hopeful for people rather than I just have to think I am good enough. I am good enough through the brain. Mm -hmm. This is deeper than that. And it's actually to go for me to that 14 year old, give her, hold her, put her on my lap in my mind's eye and help her to understand it wasn't her fault. It wasn't even about her. Even though it was told it was about her, it wasn't. 
Um, actually, my dad ended up being an alcoholic. He ended up having to leave the family to go drink and then did 29 years in, in recovery. So we healed and then we really found out what that was about. But I had to go in and really help her with that scar tissue. So with, with information and practice and kind of, again, an inner relationship to the self, um, it absolutely can change. And then they might still go achieve things. Wouldn't it be fun to go achieve things when you're not proving your worth? <laughs> and walk away from a job that you don't want to do because you don't have do anything to prove. And no matter how much money you make, you want to do something actually that you really love or like we were talking earlier, really you feel purposed around because you don't have anything to prove. Yeah, that would be true freedom, I think. Mm. That would be true freedom. Um, God, I have so many more questions and this <laughs> is going to go on because I love, love what uh, you're sharing with, with my listeners. You, um, in your book, really focus on the importance of self-care. And what I'm finding, again, with a lot of folks, um, there's so many competing priorities and so many things to do, 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 that, you know, self-care is, is not something that is um, front of mind. Mm, you say yes. about that. Well, uh, COVID, I think, has been a real lifting of the veils of many things. And it's also been tragic. So in that idea that, you know, one of the ideas in the backpack is duality, we can hold the duality of that. And, and to see that um, if I don't take care of myself, there are consequences. And so self-care for a lot of people is indulgent, kind of um, extra, if I have extra money, I might get a massage or maybe I'll, you know, if I miss a friend, I'll go to the beach with that friend. It's not, it's often not framed as essential. And I think now people realize because um, just like connection to others, it's not just good to have a social life. We are wired to have meaningful contact with others. Isolation is deadly. It is literally deadly with a suicide rate. And so I, I love that self-care is kind of, um, kind of being revisited, hopefully even through this kind of conversation. And if we have ideas of this means I'm a narcissist or this means I'm selfish, what happens, what I've noticed personally and certainly clinically and in my, my personal life is, oh, Catherine will take care of herself, but if I don't do it directly, I might do it passive aggressively or I might be someplace but because I don't get enough solitude, I'm only physically there. My attention is somewhere else. So that feeding, that, that nurturing generosity towards self, which is a practice of self-love, but also about self-care. Again, reframing the whole thing to be essential, to be non-shameful, and to actually then be, if you want to really love other people, then start loving you because your generosity towards self is exactly correlate toward the sustained generosity toward others. Mm -hmm. so yeah. If we have a full bucket, our bucket overflows, that goes to everybody. Mm, yeah. Love the duality. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, quotes by Ian Thomas, where he says mm. something like, and every day the world will drag you by the hand yelling, this is important, and this is important, and this is important. You need to worry about this and this and this. And each day it's up to you to yank your hand back, put it on your heart and say, no, this is what's important. Mm, that is so beautiful. 
Wow. So many of us have regrets of, of things that we've done in the past, you know, things mm-hmm. we may be ashamed of. Um, I know that for me and from a place of vulnerability, one thing I really regret is having gone through three advanced cancers over a five-year period is, you know, what I put my family through because they didn't sign up for it. What is your advice for making peace with our mistakes, with our regrets and perhaps self-forgive? Yeah. Well, I feel such compassion for your journey. And um, if I could speak to that as it might help your listeners working with idea of regret and guilt, I have this little uh, vetting tool that I use with my clients. And I say, so you feel guilty. So now you must tell me what you did wrong, what you actually did wrong. And if you can't tell me what you did wrong, the feeling you're feeling, you may um, feel, feel it to be guilt, but you didn't do something wrong. So there's literally nothing to feel guilty for. Now, sometimes they'll say, I feel guilty. Like if I drive poorly and I endanger somebody on the road and I feel that little ooh of guilt, I did. I drove unconsciously. So I can say, I'm going to slow down. I'm not going to tailgate somebody. You know, it wouldn't have been my intention, but I actually did something unconscious. Guilt gets a guilt as a overall feeling state is toxic, but it also gets a bad rap, I think, because it's one of all emotions have such a, such a job like regret. It's those are both in the family of sadness and they are adaptive. So if I have a regret, if I'm going to evolve, I need to have regrets to be my little wake-up calls that say, Catherine, that wasn't really yourself at best in your marriage today or with this child. So there are friends. Regret and guilt are our friends because they help us evolve. And so I think when we do the work around them, not just feel the feeling, That doesn't, I needed to drive differently. I needed to go make amends. I needed to heal my body. I felt regret and guilt around violating my body. And so I needed to, you know, be kind and heal um, what I was doing and change what I was doing. And then I could forgive myself, or in this case, my body could forgive me. And then I could forgive Mm -hmm. myself. So um, even like speaking of recovery work, there's um, a men's work as part of that journey. And I love the idea of 12 steps for everyone. For those of us that aren't addicts, we can still use some of those teachings. And it is to really do everything we can do in our power, other than if it causes further harm. And I think sometimes it goes really well and somebody turns to us or, or we've learned the lesson, we can undo the thing. Um, sometimes it doesn't go so well, but we've done everything we can. So my hope is that it is low hanging fruit that if I, Catherine, or you, Manira, have done everything you can, then you do forgive yourself. And so, but really it's a frame around instead of the negative emotions, there really are not negative emotions. There are harder emotions to feel, but they're powerful. Joy is wonderful, but I'll evolve probably because I have a regret or guilt. Mm-hmm. So we need, like the Rumi poem, the guest house, we need yes. to make room for all. They all matter. They wouldn't exist. Shame um, is a very different thing, and it can exist. But usually that happens when there's an attack on the self. And if I go to shame, I'm actually less likely to face 
um, my music, be accountable, make my apologies, change my behaviors, because it's too painful to feel shame. It's awful. It's, mm-hmm. You know, and so if we can, we can say, how about we don't attack ourselves for what we did, make sure there is something that I really did that I'm responsible for, and then simply make it right. And then all is good. <laughs> I love that you are differentiating between shame and guilt because there mm-hmm. is a huge difference. Like you said, mm-hmm. guilt is adaptive. Mm-hmm. Shame yes. is attacking yourself. Yes. And when you attack yourself and you get into that blame game, now yes. there are no winners. That's right. That's right. And I, I think the, again, kind of circling back to worth, when we understand that we get to have a process. I wasn't uh, the mom I am now when I began, you know, I just wasn't. And I get to like to give ourselves a process of evolution. So we really do need to have guilt and regret, you know, very much having a seat at the table. We also need to be able to be approachable by other people and to see, help us see our blind spots. But again, if we have kind of a sense of shame, if I do anything wrong, then I'm not, I'm not going to let people in enough, the people that might really help me. So that's where this kind of stuff goes, is if we really want a path of evolution and to be our self at best, our most conscious self, then we've got to be willing to be in that human journey and get those cues where we can get them and be grateful for them. Mm. I am totally with you. I'm going to keep asking, Catherine. So, yes, yes, um, yes, feel free. You know, uh, I know that one piece of work that you do uh, with your clients is um, helping them discover uh, or figure out or help them with purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and I know a lot of people are, are searching, you know, they're saying, what is my purpose? First of all, do you believe that the minute you're born, that you're born, um, with a purpose? Yes, but this will probably sound very woo-woo <laughs> because I believe our cultures, our shared cultures to some extent, have defined it in such a narrow way um, that it's really a kind of just the shadow of proving oneself and then I have purpose and then, you know, I'm a doctor or I, you know, I, I think to be an instrument of love, honestly, and for me, that has meant uh, I do this work as a healer and as, as a friend, a co-traveler along the way with my clients. Um, writing the book was an act of love. So again, I know that sounds very vague, so it needs to, it needs to take form. But I would say purpose is critical to even our human system. Um, You and I were chatting about a little quick experiment they did that I was introduced to in graduate school where uh, there was a control group of elderly uh, folks and an experimental group. And, you know, they just kind of were existing because they were retired and, and, and older. Well, the experimental group had a purpose of keeping a plant alive, a plant that costs $1.49 every day. And that group at the end of the experiment had such different physical markers. They were less depressed from my memory. Their blood pressure was down, it's $1.49 and it was a plant. So it can be so simple. And I think we get into these ideas of proving oneself and you know, our purpose has to be grand so that we're grand. Well, we're already grand. 
So, you know, maybe it's about bringing it down to, you know, what is my purpose in this conversation? What is my purpose in this day? Um, who am I really? And how can that be reflected in my life? And maybe that's our purpose is to be, find out who we really are and live it. Yeah. I never really thought about purpose in the way that you just framed it, but, but literally mm -hmm. purpose could be, who am I in this moment? How am I showing up? Yeah, uh, and and maybe yeah. that evolves into a bigger purpose. But yes, yeah, I, I think you're so right. I think the, the the thinking generally is that purpose has to be big, mm -hmm. and yet mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't. It can mm -hmm. be a dollar forty nine plant. That's right. That's right. And and you know when we get the mind and we get the ego and we get the the trance of unworthiness out of the way. I think then big things can happen. I mean, it was that place to go to Tara Brock and say, hey, here's my book, you know? And then, but it wasn't like, oh, I better go get somebody to endorse my book. It didn't ever, it, it came from just this pure place. And so um, let the big things happen for sure. But isn't it nice not to have the pressure of that, you know, to trust that the expansion happens from this place of consciousness, You've talked about resilience as well in your book, and you've, you've said uh, something in your book around that we each have such capacity within us. And I know that with COVID, you know, a lot of us are going through significant changes just in the way that we live. Some of mm -hmm. us are going through changes where we might have lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. um, through this time, or we may have lost a job. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, I tend to think of resilience coming from a place of change. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear your perspective on, on resilience in the face of change. Well, back to neurobiology, we actually grow, we have innate resilience. You know, that's that classic idea that, you know, I might lift a car if my toddler's under it, <laughs> like superpowers. Um, that's still kind of hard to believe, but uh, I think that might have been actually a true thing or certainly a kind of thing that adrenaline is. So we have innate capacities, um, but we can grow those capacities and that growth happens in the difficult times. So that's something to remember on the river when I'm in rapids is I and we will with COVID forever be changed for what we discovered about our own capacities. Um, but self-care Going back to self-care, my capacity to be resilient is directly related to how well I take care of the system that is traveling through this circumstance that requires my resistance or my resilience. So it grows through the difficult times, which is, it doesn't make them any easier, but it's helpful to see that silver lining. Um, and then we need those times in life where we're kind of in the pool of the river where there's no rapids and it's quieter or, you know, we're coasting. Yes. And, and I guess lastly, that, you know, I sit with so many people that are, are terrified of different things in life. And uh, I've had a few different clients through the years now, especially afraid of cancer. And you might speak to this. They didn't know they were going to get it. I didn't either. But I've worked with some people long term. And then they got the thing that they were terrified of. And then they discovered, I can handle it. It's like, wow, wouldn't it have been great to not have 10 years of your life prior to this diagnosis 
knowing that you actually could handle it and will handle it. And there might even be beautiful and powerful things that come with it. Wouldn't have that been great? So we could use our mind that can project our fragility or this catastrophic kind of way of, Mm -hmm. you know, imagining a future. We can imagine that I have resilience and I can grow resilience and I don't know actually what I can and can't handle. Mm-hmm. So many things about what you just said. Uh, you know, one thing that's that's popping in my mind is how much we worry about stuff and project stuff that hasn't mm-hmm. been happened. I mean, the, the amount of wasted time and effort and energy because we make it so real in, in our head. And the other thing around that is uh, just like the river, you know, if we are just a little bit patient with ourselves, things pass, you know? Yes. And And there's, yes. And there's, there's an inherent grace with, with nature to not Mm -hmm. want to be so much in control because through my cancer journey, what I learned is how much I was not in control. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where uh, acceptance and submission, not because, you know, you couldn't do anything about it, not from a victim perspective, but more from uh, accepting that this too shall pass. Yes, this too. Resources to to cope. Yeah, that's what was coming up. Well, this too shall pass and almost circling back to with your family, the journey that they must have uh, walked that your opportunity as it's an analogy for your listeners of not projecting hardship where it doesn't exist or greater than it exists or hardship without yes but mom I learned a lot and life is so much more precious and look at what we experienced through this together so this feeling of not only not having personal responsibility to feel guilty about your cancer and its impact on your family and that they you didn't sign up for it either probably unless but they kind of all did because we're human but what you know the gains and the powerfulness of uh you know those times actually when we're not in control and and we're actually the river's taking us where it's going to go um, and, you know, we're around a bend we hadn't anticipated. Uh, yeah. Why would you say relationships are so critical for us to be our best selves individually and collectively? Yeah, well, I guess part of it is, and this is a little of my kind of not, it's a little part of my life and practice and work anti-racism, but a piece of this conversation is um, to be the me within the we, whether that's a relationship, a dyad or a marriage or a friendship, but also in the collective, the, the larger we is fine um, because that's, that, that's helpful, but it's, it's, it's so toxic at the same time. We, with COVID, I think uh, so many people understand their need for others and connectivity at a level they never could have known, even going to the store uh, and being able to just physically be around, you know, people to have a smile with a neighbor because, you know, everybody can be out and about just, just that much less the deeper relationships we have and maintain. So all that said, um, how to be conscious in a relationship for some of us, um, 
you know, we got some work to do, honestly. Um, you know, from my book that, you know, one of my pieces of work was my temper. Come to find out, of course, that rage was really part of the pain and the shame. It was defensive anger around my unworthiness. And that's just the direction it went. It went into being a rageful person at times. And so, you know, I, again, no therapist ever sat me down and said, Catherine, your anger is not the problem, but your unregulated anger is super a problem. And that's, you're going to need to look at that. Um, and so I, even when I was training for, um, you know, as to becoming a therapist and, and working with couples, I was seeing that unregulated emotion was you can do nonviolent communication, you can use I statements, you can um, kind of create a space for a time to talk. But if I am so upset, your nervous system cannot hear me. And I also might say or do some very unconscious things in that anger. They call it um, like a blackout. Um, you can have rage such that you won't remember what you said. And so that's just one part of that chapter. But I start with that as an element of conscious relationship is making sure that we are in touch with our feelings, but that our feelings and for people like me, our tempers are not running the show. So I, there were, and then there's just other elements. And I took that chapter to be not just couples work, though I do a lot of couples work, all the elements other than sexuality, in any relationship I see is really mattering, collaboration, repair work, transparency, uh, taking care of the relationship, just all the different things that um, I just wanted to bring to the table for people to think about. Well, I haven't got to that chapter yet, so I will have something to look forward to. There you go. Something there you go. Um, Catherine, um, Maybe we conclude with this because otherwise we could go on for another hour. We would. But <laughs> what, what is one thing that you are most hopeful for today? Uh, well, I say this in my book around an idea of spirituality, and yes, it you is. Do. And and I I I encourage and um, in, invite all of us to test these waters. I love what Gandhi said about and. A thousand experiments with truth, I believe, that, you know, I can believe something, but let's do the experiment and let's get direct experience around it. And so I am in deep heartbreak around certain things that are happening on the planet and, um, you know, just the human condition and the state of the earth. And I know, in my direct experience at least, that there is always eventually a consciousness that meets the unconsciousness. And sometimes I have to be very patient to see that movement of consciousness. Sometimes, you know, it took a lot of children that were abused before we had child abuse laws. It took a lot of animals that were abused before we had animal abuse laws. Um, so it doesn't mean that there aren't losses. But that's what gives me hope in sometimes a daily, like moment by moment kind of way um, and in a larger way um, as well. So right now, you know, I'm seeing that. I'm just seeing some really powerful things happening hugely around social justice. Um, and yeah, like the gift of every day to see what I just said manifest in individual people's lives. Answered like a true therapist. I loved how you <laughs> held the duality of this. So acknowledging uh, what's going on in the world right now and yet being really hopeful that as a result of what's going on in the world, that things will get better. Yeah. I, if we don't have that, and again, real hope, 
not like positivity is a feel good thing, but real hope, um, like in the hard look at what's really real. That to me is so important because then I don't have to disassociate from what's going on. And then I can make the difference in the world that I can make. And that is part of my purpose personally is to be in this world, contributing to its consciousness in whatever form it can be. I think you just defined your purpose. <laughs> Catherine, um, oh. if uh, individuals want to be in touch with you, perhaps they'd like you to be their therapist or mm. want to learn more about you, where to find the book, etc. What would be the best way for them to, uh, to connect with you? Well, uh, I created a little website. So Energy Counseling is my counseling practice. Harbor Glow Publishing is my publishing company. My husband's a chiropractor and a personal coach also. So we created a website called harborglowholistic.com. So harborglowholistic.com. Um, the book itself. Um, and by the way, just a quick correction. Uh, my name is Catherine Jansen Burkett. So Burkett's at the end. Um, that That's on Amazon and some other uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, some of the uh, independent bookstores. Audible's has it in uh, the Audible form now. I just got a great narrator last year. A really phenomenal woman. Mm -hmm. She's on the path for sure. And then she was just the voice. Uh, so yeah, so basically my website, um, and then if you want to get in touch with the, the book through those sources. Amazing. And I'll make sure to have all of that information in the show notes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Any last oh. words, Catherine, Catherine Jensen Burkett before yes. we close? Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time and just the, the gift of meeting you truly. Um, I wish you so well and thank you for the work you're doing to bring all of this uh, forward um, and to your w listeners um, to their greatest, greatest awakened lives. It has been my joy and my pleasure, Kathleen Jensen Brickett. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that our paths will cross again and again. I, and again. <laughs> I hope so. Absolutely. If you have enjoyed today's show, click the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Share the podcast with others. And if you want to help this podcast grow, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more listeners tune into it. It really helps. In the meantime, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, choose hope. How will you choose hope today?